Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theolyn Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, I think in part because I was away last week. So tell me, what did I miss? Well, um, me and Alex Clark uh, talked to Margaret Drabble about Roses and Orwell. That's Rebecca Solnit's book, isn't it? That's been hyped for much of the year. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I was able to to uh, read uh, to Margaret because Rebecca Solnit had sort of written a piece in response to reviews of the book. Oh, right. Um, yeah, it was it was funny. A very nice piece saying of, of, I'm very lucky to be reviewed and every, you know, people have written brilliant things about it. But clearly she was a little bit narked. She said people call it a collection of essays. Right. Uh, and I and I was saying to uh, Margaret hadn't called it that, so we were we were good. Uh, she'd <laughs> called it rhizomatic thinking. I can't remember whether that was from her or or Rebecca Solnit. Um, and 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 Rebecca Solnit had said if if you say this book is a collection of essays to me, that's like saying that your family is a collection of people or a tree is a collection of sticks. <laughs> so we were so we didn't do that. So you know that was good. You have your sights set on on both of these books about roses, then. I really do. Yeah. The first one was a cultural history. Yeah. And um, and yeah, the second was about Orwell and Roses. And yeah, actually, they both sound terrific. So if you do want to get me something for Christmas, Thea, just just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Available at all good bookshops near you. <laughs> I'll see. I'll see how I feel about this at the end of the show. Right. Fine. What have you been reading if you've not been reading those? Well, excitingly, it was exciting for me. I read the last instalment in the Expanse series. Oh, is that the massive space opera that you've been reading for a while? Right, yeah. Yes. This is the ninth and final instalment. It's called Leviathan Falls by James S.A. Corey. There is a TV show, but so far I'm a purist. I haven't seen the TV show because I want to read the books first. Um, I might not watch it because I'm just I just like the books. So so it was just completely thrilling. I stayed up too late. I can't tell you what happens. Also, it would take a long time because it's nine books. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, it was a very satisfying. You know, you always worry about the last book in a series. Yeah, whether it will be like the last album. That's usually a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, it was. It was pretty good. Out on a high, I would say. 
Well, good. I wonder if there's a subgenre like sci-fi gardening, you know, like the benign and cheerful antidote to, to cli-fi climate crisis fiction. What, where people just garden on other planets and have a nice time? That's not, <laughs> yeah. what's go- that's not what's going on on this one, let me tell you. If any such thing exists, people should let Lucy know, certainly. Yes, please, or, or <laughs> write some and I'll happily read it. <laughs> right, well, coming up on this week's show, a special on uh, sci-fi gardening. Uh, no, not really. Coming up on this week's show... What is this strange world? Why aren't the musicians looking down at their mobile phones between every take? Did people want smoke indoors interminably? Why so little swearing? Are they only fed toast and jam? The musician and critic Wesley Stace transports us to the late 1960s via a fantastic new film about the Beatles. But first, more than 70 years have passed since a young doctoral student called Leon Katz discovered in a box containing miscellaneous forgotten items housed in the Yale University Library a brown paper packet containing a tranche of grey-covered notebooks belonging to Gertrude Stein. The contents of these notebooks, which date from a critical period in Stein's life and career, looked set to change Stein's scholarship forever, and may well have done so had they ever been published in their entirety. Instead, for the rest of his life, Leon Katz studied the notebooks, supplementing them with his own copious and meticulously organised notes, not to mention hours and hours' worth of interviews conducted in Paris, in the winter of 1952 with Stein's partner, Alice B. Tokles, the foremost worshipper at the altar of Gertrude Stein. By the time Leon Katz died in 2017 at the age of 97, very little of this research had entered the public domain. Now things are perhaps changing, starting with an article this week by Francesca Wade, who, working on a book about Stein's afterlife, has visited the archive at Yale, where Katz's own papers have come to be housed. What we all want to know, did she discover there? Francesca Wade joins us on the line now to tell us all about it. Hello, Francesca. Hi, dear. Our story starts with these notebooks of Stein's. Um, Can you tell us what period they capture and what was going on in Stein's life, creatively and personally, Mm. that that makes them so important? The notebooks cover the period between 1902 and about 1911, um, which was a really critical period in both in Stein's life and in her writing. Um, It was the period on which she was working on the making of Americans, um, which is in many ways her kind of crowning achievement. Um, But what these notebooks show is that the project actually had many more stages than was originally expected and was much more entwined than might be apparent from the final text in a series of sort of psychological kind of dramas that were going on in her life, including her um, her move to Paris in 1903, her, the start of her life there, um, and her beginning to live with and work with Alice B. Toklas. Um, it also encompasses her very fraught relationship with a woman called May Bookstaver um, from her time as a student um, back in America. Um, so it was really a time when Stein was coming into a kind of vision of of herself and moving in her writing from a a kind of early realist kind of style which um, she'd been sort of reading a lot of people like Henry James and um, was I guess kind of experimenting with narrative and character but in a relatively straightforward fashion which is shown in her Um, very first novel QED um, and to some extent in Three Lives Um, but she was moving away from that into this kind of explosion of experiment um, with language which after the finishing of The Making of Americans would be the project she would really pursue for the rest of her writing life. 
And I mean, this this really was a time of great change uh, for Stein. You, you've touched on it there, but I mean, this this was a decade during which she, as you said, she left America for Paris, but she cut off many former friends, including her, her relationship with her brother, Leo. That kind of came to mm. uh, an end. So it was a time of breakages, but there was also this new this new start, both creatively and also a new a new bond uh, because Alice uh, Toklas entered her life in, I think it was 1908, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, yes, and the Stein-Toklas relationship is just one of the most sort of fascinating relationships, I think, in you know in all, in all history, really. And um, and it was a very, very kind of textual relationship. Their work, um, Stein's work, from the point at which they met, was completely um, kind of bound up um, with Toklas, who would um, often copy out and. Um, um, transcribe her writing. Um, Stein would write in in notebooks um, and pass them over to Toklas often with um, with kind of notes to her um, enclosed um, and often with um, sort of changes um, put in for her approval. It was a, a really a relationship um, that that affirmed and enabled Stein's writing. Um, and I think something that looking back at these early notebooks really showed me was how much she needed that affirmation, how much it meant to her to have the influence of someone kind of outside her who didn't even necessarily always understand what Stein was trying to do, but um, but supported it and was able to say so. And just seemed to know from the get-go or think from the get-go, this is, this is, this is incredibly important. But I mean, there are these two strands to the notebook then inevitably, and you can't you can't pull them apart um, that we might try to do so just to be able to talk about them in, in, mm. in, in slightly more manageable pieces. But so uh, the notebooks, they, they cast light on the work and second, they cast light on all the relationships. So um, let's just start with the work. You've mentioned that these notebooks were written while Stein was working on the making of Americans. Um, and in them, Katz found something that surprised him, something that he thought was just the key to to decoding this particularly perplexing text. So what was what was his epiphany? Well, I think he really realised that the, the novel had started much earlier than before, and the novel was finally published in 1925 um, by Robert McAllman's Contact Editions in Paris. Stein had, having finished it around 1911, had been um, trying to place it with publishers for years and it was constantly rejected. Um, she sent the manuscript off to America. Also, she got her friends to send it to publishers. Um, the first excerpts from it were published in the Transatlantic Review, um, which um, led eventually to a, to a full edition being published um, in Paris. And I think in, a, in the foreword to that, Stein claimed that she'd um, started the book in 1906, um, but Katz realised that it was very clear from these notebooks that the final text was the product of a much longer um, and much more um, sort of difficult process that had involved an earlier version that had been almost totally um, cast aside um, owing to a kind of stylistic aesthetic epiphany for Stein, um, which was also um, very much a personal one. He talks about a monumental aesthetic awakening, doesn't he? And, and how does how does Toklas come into this? How did she, you know, coming along in 1908, how do we think that, that she changed the course of that book from, from what it could have been to what it ultimately was? She gave a really sort of outsider perspective on the Stein household at this point. 
Gertrude was living with Leo Stein in Paris, um, her older brother, um, who was quite a complex kind of imperious character. Um, they would argue a lot. Um, he was he was very dismissive of her work. Um, he thought you know that, that what Gertrude was was embarked on was was futile. That that neither in sort of content nor form nor language. She too. doesn't know English. He said. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's not the only one who has made that suggestion. They had a serious sort of moral disagreements. Or the Stein at this point was very obsessed with character. The the making of Americans is all about. Um, her aim to kind of delineate character. Um, she studied her, everyone she knew. The notebooks contain about 400 names of people from her fellow students, her family, um, her cleaner, um, studying their characters, trying to isolate their traits, um, trying to fit them into a complex scheme, which she thought would be the key to understanding the entirety of human nature. Um, and Leo, I think, just thought this was this was ridiculous. He wasn't interested. Um, and Togler's actually also, I think, thought it was it was not the right approach. She was interested in character and in what Stein was doing, but rather than dismiss what she thought wasn't working, she encouraged Stein to kind of turn her sort of very powerful intuition of of people into a slightly different approach and it was at her encouragement that Stein kind of set aside the novel and started writing her portraits starting with one of Alice herself um, which kind of focus in more on sort of individuals and 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 explore language I think as a way to um, to kind of isolating something at the heart of of character. I was going to ask if Alice B. Tuckless had a, a measurable effect on her form as it were, in her style. And from that, it sounds as though she did. But the way she did it was not by uh, what her brother did was say, well, that sounds ridiculous, because it's a very grandiose and rather mm. vampiric scheme that, that, you know, that it sounded like at the beginning to say, I'm going to figure out all of humanity, <laughs> um, which is kind of what she did, isn't it? But but Toklas said, well, actually, it sounds like I'm obviously very much paraphrasing and dumbing down. She said, well, you're very good at this and this is interesting. Why not try that? That's great. You're great. So she did affect her work formally as well as sort of being a support system did she yeah I think very much so um I think that I mean what Leon Katz sort of drew out of um out of his study of the notebooks and of the changes in the novel and of talking to Alice was a a kind of a drama that he cast um between these these two women and it was really not only a drama kind of on the page of Stein working out how she wanted to write um but of how she wanted to kind of relate to other people, really. And I think it was meeting someone who, for the first time, she sort of felt inclined to, to kind of, in her words, <laughs> surrender to um, that kind of opened her out into this um, kind of broader, um, happier, really, way of way of writing. And I think what her relationship with Alice did was kind of offer her a blueprint for a, a very different sort of relationship. I mean, the later portrayals of the stein list relationship um, were always of, of Gertrude being the domineering one and Alice as the totally subservient, you know, disciple um, whose own life was completely submerged into Stein's. Um, but what this period um, really shows is the kind of power struggle that it took to get there and how Toklis's sort of later subservience was, was only possible because she had already shaped the course of Stein's 
writing and and of her relation to others mm, and because you can you can really see um in in well not only in in um in Katz's interviews with with her um which he chronicles in his own notebooks but uh, you can see how how forthright she was I think Alice always said that she that she never <laughs> wrote a word of of Stein's work some people later thought that perhaps this was all all written um by her but she always insisted um that was never the case but I think you can see if you look at the manuscripts of Stein's writing you can see how important the process of of their kind of collaboration was Stein is always um writing notes looking for um sort of confirmation um looking looking for praise there's an instance where the word may is replaced with mm. the word can can you tell us about that well that is a rather notorious um, incident of Alice having an effect on Stein's work and it's a bit of a mystery this um came to light in the 1980s when the great Stein scholar Ulla Dido um, was working on the manuscripts and she was looking at um, stanzas and meditation. Dido noticed that in the original manuscript every instance of the word may had been crossed out and replaced with the word can even when this made absolutely no sense you know when it was the month of may or the word maybe <laughs> became can be and she <laughs> speculated that there was something biographical you know this wasn't a, a kind of a literary change um and she very ingeniously connected it back to the discovery that year um of stein's unpublished first novel QED um, which was a kind of straight um, novel dissecting the kind of love triangle um, between Stein a woman called May Bookstaver um, and another woman called Mabel Haynes they'd all been students together um, and uh, there'd been you know, a drama, Stein had fallen in love with May, who had kind of rejected her. There'd been a sort of a power struggle, much similar to how um, Stein and Teclis had experienced uh, Stein wanting to um, to dominate, um, but May um, rejecting her. Um, and this had all been poured into this novel, Dido suggested, um, was that it was Alice, whose fury at the resurfacing of this manuscript of the novel which had, Stein had never told her about it um, and hadn't told her about May caused her such anguish that she insisted that May's name should be removed um, from from the work in progress. And she apparently sanded an M that she found um, on Gertrude Stein's desk, uh, sanded it away because she couldn't bear the sight of it. Part of, of, of Katz's work of of showing how imbricated the life and the work are involves necessarily confronting Toklas with all of the past, with all of this, with all yeah. of these, you know, darker moments in in their relationship, which Toklas doesn't want to um, admit to, really, because it, it changes the way that she wishes the past to be uh, presented. There's, there's a particularly tense moment where where Katz shows her what in these notebooks that he that he discovered what Gertrude Stein said about Alice in in the early days. Dido argues that 1932 to 1935 were a very difficult sort of tense time in the Stein Toklas relationship um, and that it took a little while for them to sort of recover their kind of equilibrium um, but from that point um, they were 
very you know publicly devoted their legend was completely kind of bound up with each other and after Stein's death um, in 1946 she really committed to um, kind of propagating that that legend um, on her death Stein's papers were all transferred to the Yale University Library and it's I'm not quite sure whether it was at this point or before that that all of um, that Toklas burned um, all of the letters to May Bookstaver um, she was very upset to realize that she had omitted to burn um, a, a whole lot of kind of love letters which um, turned up at Yale and um, the librarian Donald Gallup who was in charge of cataloging the material had to um, dissuade her from insisting that all of inner things that are personal should be burned and so when it was discovered that um, that these notebooks had also survived which gave a very different impression of Stein um, in, in these early years and particularly of the beginning of their relationship um, Toklovs was pretty horrified again that this sort of further kind of biographical evidence um, was was out there and was threatening both the image that she had committed to kind of disseminating and I guess really her own memories of the relationship Mm. that had that had meant everything to her that's an odd power relationship in itself isn't it because Katz is there talking to Toklas and he he needs Toklas to talk to him but he actually has got quite a bit of power because she wants to look at the notebooks Katz at this point was in his early 30s he was um, doing a doctorate um, at Columbia and he'd gone to the Yale University Library it was just two years after the um, these boxes had arrived and so they were slowly being catalogued but really no one knew quite what was in them um, a lot of the material Stein had started sending her papers to Yale in 1937 and sent a lot more during the Second World War out of fear for their safety. So she, ironically, Toklas had kept Stein's material, her correspondence, her manuscripts very carefully in sort of meticulously um, ordered filing cabinets. But they were in such a hurry to send this material off that they sort of poured it kind of indiscriminately into boxes. And that's probably how the notebooks that, might otherwise have been sifted out um made it over so when cats found these notebooks and realized quite quickly that you know the material in them was was sort of dynamite um he wrote to her and asked if he could come and interview her and she had been um quite sort of squeamish about talking to biographers there'd been a lot of interest of course and a lot of people wanted to write stein's biography and to befriend Toklas and to sort of get her (laughs) memories out of her and she um she was eager to do it as a sort of keeper of the flame but very much a keeper of of, you know her own flame a few people who saw her in those years uh remember her um in answer to questions about Stein and their life actually quoting verbatim from the autobiography um, sort of ventriloquizing Stein kind of ventriloquizing her um, which sort of shows just how sort of <laughs> on message she was um, and I think she liked the fact that he was a, a scholar of the text she was always desperate for people to read and understand Stein's work she was much more interested in people who wanted to talk about the work than than people who wanted to gossip about um you know Hemingway and Fitzgerald and so on um and so I think that was all contributing to um to the openness with which she actually spoke to Katz. Before long you say she was offering him cigarettes and soup and and everything she could remember (laughs) This book that was going to change Stein's scholarship forever, it, it never came. I, what what was going on there? Mm. 
Well, Katz left. He spent four months in Paris with Toklas in 1952 to 1953 um, and came back to America um, to publish his first to finish writing his dissertation, um, which was to be on a sort of study of the notebooks and the early drafts of the making of Americans. Um, and he was given permission by the Stein estate ultimately to publish the notebooks with his commentary. Um, but this never did happen. And um, I came to this material um, after reading Janet Malcolm's book, um, Two Lives, which was published in 2007. Um, and in, it in fact came out of two articles she published in The New Yorker, um, slightly earlier, I think around 2004, 2005. Um, and she had um, become in, interested in the cat's um, material. And at this point, um, he was still alive and she tried to get in touch with him and um, he actually refused to talk to her. Um, and at that point, he was still very much working on the project, which by that point, he'd been working on the material for 50 years. Um, and she did speak to several other Stein experts, um, many of whom had worked with cats in various capacities, um, who were very much lamenting the fact that this material wasn't public, and particularly that um, that no one knew what Toklas had actually said to him during um, those um, intense months of interviews. Um, and I think it's hard to speculate on what really held him back. I think he was an extremely devoted and brilliant scholar, you know, as devoted in a way to, as, as Toklas was to, to the work and um, didn't want to release this material until he was satisfied with it um, and kept on um, ordering the notebooks chronologically. I think when he came across them in the boxes, they were in no apparent order, um, working on his commentary um, and working on uh, a kind of study of the notebooks, which would he would set alongside um, the edited text. And the story is really just about, I mean, the meeting of, of the unlikely meeting of three incredibly controlling characters, really controlling, you know, it's kind of perfectionism gone mad. And the irony is that it's a sad irony is that someone who clearly thought the world of Stein and, you know, regretted her marginal position in, in the world of literature ended up holding Stein scholarship back. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a story. It's a, it's a drama. I mean, Katz was a, a dramaturg and he, um, in fact, the during his lifetime, the main form in which he did kind of reflect on this experience was actually through a play um, which he which he wrote, which several sort of drafts of which and instructions for the staging of which um, survive in his archive. Um, in which he kind of interspersed quotes from the making of Americans with quotes from the notebooks and quotes from Toklas as um, talking to him. And he himself was in fact a character um, on stage. So you'd have the three of them, Gertrude Alice and Leon Katz. Um, and I think Alfred Hersland, the character from the making of Americans were all characters in this play, all sort of strange fictional figments of each other. Um, it sounds like something Pirandello might have written. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite yeah. a weird one, isn't it? But he clearly needed someone to come along and say, stop, stop, you know, mattering. <laughs> Publish the thing. Yeah. I'm glad no one said that to Pirandello. That, that would have been a very killjoy thing to say. Yeah. 
Well, it's strange that the that the story, I guess, kind of came to light or more public light through um, through Janet Malcolm's um, interest in the in the work um, and the strange kind of twist and all this. I've been working on this material for for two years. I went to the archive in September 2019, um, and. It, this is now sort of expanded into a book that I'm working on about Stein's kind of posthumous legacy and reception. Um, but in the in the meantime, in the time that I've been working on this, just a couple of months ago, um, it turned out that um, Leon Katz's sons um, have self-published an edition of the complete notebooks. So finally, Katz's work is actually public um, at last and available, um, even if in a somewhat sort of difficult to get hold of form. Um, so I guess the story goes on. And the question now is, will this publication, as the scholars that Janet Malcolm talked to, Kind of hoped and expected kind of propel the making of Americans onto university syllabuses and change Stein scholarship in the way that we see her. Because they must all have bought it instantly as soon as they saw this uh, this print-on-demand self-published version appear online and presumably it has no critical um, apparatus to to help you through it so it it, it, it needs scholars to, to pick it up now and and, yes, and, and work I think with it. it. I think there's a lot more, a lot more to do. I mean, it's um, it's amazing to have the text of the notebooks um, in a kind of accessible format. Or, I mean, scholars have worked on the notebooks subsequently, but have had to go to Yale um, and spend time with them um, in in that form. Um, it's yeah, brilliant to have Katz's incredibly kind of learned and informed um, annotations. Um, there's definitely more to do. I mean, even in the course of the last couple of years, I've been working on the material. I've been sort of looking further into Katz's annotations, and I think there are, there are ways to kind of expand them, things that he perhaps sort of didn't always cover or, or know about. Um, it's hard really without an index to see how useful the, um, the book would be. Um, it's a it's a really huge immense um and sort of complicated text um and I guess I'm excited to see what happens to it next um mm. it's and fascinating a, fascinating to see how this 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 scholar has become a, a, a figure in in the story in the drama between uh, of the life as it played out between these two incredible women so I mean we're really ending on a bit of a watch this space aren't we Yes, I think so. And I think it's, it's, yeah, it's a story of biographers and, and, you know, and of the stakes that, that people hold in, in the past. And, you know, we can never, we can't recover Stein's life or even Douglas's, but we can, there's a sort of a stepping stones of, of people kind of engaged in, in that work, kind of looking back. Um, and it's exciting to feel that that sort of history coming alive when you discover something new about a figure as kind of famous as Gertrude Stein. Well, Francesca Wade, thank you very much for um, for bringing us all of that. You'll have to come on again, I think, to keep us up to date with developments. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. Still to come on the show, we revisit a sad but productive time in the life of the Beatles when the deep bonds of friendship were still strong, but the tension, the frustration, the distraction and the occasional angry outburst 
were on the rise. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. back to the TLS podcast. You may have noticed a resurgence of Beatle activity happening recently. We talked about Paul McCartney's book, The Lyrics, a few weeks ago, because I got to see him discuss it live with Paul Muldoon, which was a thrill. And we have a lovely piece on that book in the paper this week by the poet Carol Rumans. And now to add to these riches, there is a new set of films called The Beatles Get Back, a full six hours of the fabs, taken from the archived footage of a film from 1970, confusingly called Let It Be. And here to unravel and examine all this is Wesley Stace, himself a consummate musician, who has written about it beautifully for us. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you very much for having me. Can you set the scene for us a bit? I've I've just unhelpfully said, here's a film called Get Back, based on a film called Let It Be, and left it there. Can you give us a bit of background? It is a bit complicated, isn't it? So the Beatles out of slight desperation and wanting a feel of authenticity after having made the White Album, decided, and I think Paul was the person who most wanted this, they wanted to do something authentic. They wanted to maybe put on a live show and they wanted to have the whole thing filmed. It's also a slight act of hubris to think you can create a whole new album in front of the cameras. But given that they were slightly... Uh, spinning apart at this time, that was the decision that was taken. It was to be directed by a man called Michael Lindsay Hogg, who um, 
had previously made promos for them, including the Hey Jude promo that they've recently shot at Twickenham, where they also had happy memories of making Help and Hard Day's Night. So they decided to make it there. Lindsay Hogg had also just directed the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus movie, which in which Lennon had participated. So he was something of a of a obvious choice at that time. This is all about Beatle January 1969. Uh, the movie Get Back is a very deep dive into that entire month. They went to Twickenham. It didn't go so well. George walked out in frustration. In the deal to get him back, they decided, which probably involved that they'd use more of his songs on the record as well. He, they then decamped to Apple Studios at Three Savile Row, where they made recordings for another week or two weeks, and then famously got up on the rooftop. There had been very, very grand schemes for what the show, the climactic show would be, including a Roman amphitheater in Libya, a cruise ship. I mean, many crazy ideas. And in the end, for reasons we can go into, it, they ended up on the rooftop in that incredibly famous rooftop concert. The album, was salvaged from those recordings at Apple and probably a little bit of what had been recording at Twickenham and was not finished by either George Martin or Glyn Johns, who were the two producers at the time, but was finished later by Phil Spector. Because the Beatles were falling apart at the time, it was all to do with business. And John was very in favour of business manager by a aggressive businessman called Alan Klein, who's famous in a way for having broken up the Beatles. And one of the ways that happened was that he was the one who kind of John and he gave the tapes to Spectre. And Paul McCartney first heard the overdubs on Long and Winding Road when it was about to be in the shops, hated it. And that was much enmity because of that. After all that, Michael Lindsay Hogg edited a one hour, 20 minute movie called let It Be, which is a rather painful, grainy, murky watch and is basically the theme is the Beatles are breaking up and there's a rooftop concert at the end. That is not a terribly enjoyable experience, that uh, film Let It Be, and in fact hasn't even been available since the days of the distant days of VHS, uh, probably in the 1980s. Many, many years later, 53 years later, or however long they took to make it, 51 years later, uh, these tapes 60 hours of video and however many hours of audio made it to Peter Jackson, he of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings movies and many apart from that. And he was given by producers Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr and Yoko Ono and Olivia Harrison being the widows of the two dead Beatles. He was given carte blanche to do what he wanted. What he has done is an amazing uh, uh, document of artistic creation that's almost nine hours, almost as long as the entire Lord of the Rings epic film trilogy he made, about an hour and a half shy of that. And it's that the story of that entire time. The hype about that movie was very much, it wasn't a miserable time. They weren't just breaking up. It was the most creative they ever were. I was very suspicious of that hype. And in fact, it turns out that that was, you know, a good way to sell a movie because it really doesn't matter what you say about it. There is both pain, there is spinning apart and breaking up of the band, but there is also intense creativity all at once as we see these four figures becoming two, two greater than the whole can contain. Even Paul McCartney can't corral them into being a band.
The one caveat to all this, of course, let it be, though it came out last of their records, was not the last record made. The last record made was Abbey Road, for which they went back to George Martin for a little order and his father figurely paternal control. They gave it back to him, but Abbey Road ended up coming out before Let It Be, which came out to tie in with the movie. Can I just interject very, very briefly? Because in, 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 in that, you mentioned Peter Jackson and you mentioned The Lord of the Rings, but you did not mention that there is another connection in the fact that the Beatles were almost... Uh, around this same time, almost cast as hobbits in a Kubrick version of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Is that right? That blows your mind, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) To a writer like me, (laughs) when asked to write about The Beatles Get Back, which, by the way, is a a long piece of work, because first you've got to watch it, and then you've got to write about it. Oh, no, Wes, how awful. You had to watch it. Did you not enjoy it? (laughs) Luckily, it was Thanksgiving weekend, and we were all, you know, quite relaxed. But um, uh, what happened was... The actor Victor Spinetti, I actually found this, there's a TLS link to this because I found out about this in Craig Brown's book, One, Two, Three, Four, which I reviewed for the TLS a little a little while ago. And there's a, you know, the way he's always looking at celebrities' memoirs that aren't necessarily the people you'd connect with the Beatles, if you know what I mean, like would be a thing about what Oscar Wilde, what, what Noel Coward thought of the Beatles. And so this was from Victor Spinetti's memoir. And in Victor Spinetti's memoir, he says that he received a package of four books from Apple Corps, the Beatles company. And no sooner had he opened them to find out they were the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, than he got a call from John Lennon, with whom he'd acted in Help and Hard Day's Night. And Lennon said, have you got the books yet? Uh, they're going to do a movie we're going to be the hobbits and you're going to be Gandalf. Now, that sounds like it can't possibly be true. But in fact, not only was it true, but um, I think it was Dennis Dell, isn't it? Who's the Apple film. The Magic Christian guy. Yeah, that's Dennis Dell. Yeah, who pops up in in Get Back. We see him quite often because obviously Let It Be was, you know, his idea too, because he's head of Apple Films. And... um, the Beatles have two or three, I did a bit of research into it, they have two or three other film projects they nearly got around to doing, and The Lord of the Rings was one of them. Kubrick had been approached to direct it, but was sceptical about the idea that special effects could handle his vision of what he wanted The Lord of the Rings world to be like. <laughs> I know it's all true. And then, of course, a little later, they made that bizarre and not very good Ralph Bakshi a- animated version of Lord of the Rings in the 70s. Um, but uh, in the end, and this is where it gets even better, and I do have to thank Craig Brown for this, um, Tolkien refused them the rights because Tolkien was very uh, against rock music because there'd been a band of long hairs uh, rehearsing down the road from him. <laughs> so apparently he, did a, he had a great antipathy to popular music that the kids were making, and so he refused the Beatles the rights. That Lord of the Rings movie was never made and attention turned to Let It Be. But the link between that and Peter Jackson actually making the Beatles get back is, I have to say, gold for a writer like myself. I'm so glad I asked. Yes, <laughs> it was beautifully done. And we can all imagine what the Kubrick film would have been like. Probably a right laugh, I imagine. <laughs> Best imagined, perhaps. <laughs> um, and how do you think that the, the film will change the perception? Maybe it already has. You, you say in the piece that one of the things that becomes very clear, there was a lot of rather unpleasant coverage around the time, which still persisted, that blamed Yoko Ono, basically, for the break of the Beatles. Everything was fine until she came along. Um, and it just becomes very clear here 
that and in fact is is openly discussed by the lads themselves that it's not it's not yoko that's remotely the problem the problem is the business of it the problem is that george wants more songs on the record and deserves them because he's writing great songs and that paul mm. wants the beatles to be a touring band and that john has a different set of criteria altogether and sillily that ringo doesn't want to go abroad and eat the food he doesn't like i mean all these things play into the breakup of a band I mean, I try nothing I ever do to be a hot take, but my hot take from this that I didn't even write in the article is that Yoko's what's keeping the Beatles together, not what's breaking them up, because John wants Yoko with him. And if she is by his side, uh, he is happy to keep, you know, creating the Beatles. And this wasn't the first album she'd attended either. The point is that Let It Be by Michael Lindsay Hogg. And again, I couldn't go into this in the article. If you watch the beginning of that, In the first two minutes, Michael Lindsay Hogg sets out his stall. You see Paul and Ringo, I think, playing at the piano. On top of the piano is a moldy, half-eaten apple core. Okay, so that's the opening. Get it? Get it? Then, after a little bit, you see George kind of playing the guitar. And then the next shot is John with Yoko looming, seeming to loom impossibly close over his shoulder. So within the first, and you haven't even seen the four Beatles together. So it's Paul, George, Paul and Ringo, George, John and Yoko. And so I have to say that in, you know, in everybody's opinion, let it be as something of an urtext of anti-Yoko-ness. Beatles Get Back is a, is a wonderful documentary. Mm. I'm sure that Michael Lindsay Hogg now would be able to make the Beatles get back. But it's taken 53 years of perspective to get there. At the time, he made the only movie I think he could make. And his text was, the band's breaking up and Yoko's responsible. That's certainly what it seems like. Now, it's very interesting that you say, I've got something here I prepared earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to sing a song. No, it's very interesting that I think it does change perceptions about Yoko. Now, one of the fringe pleasures of this immense movie is having pernicious biographers proved wrong. Here is Bob Spitz in his big book, The Beatles, from a few years ago. There is a fantastic scene in the movie where George walks out. They don't know what to do. He says, find a replacement. He's very annoyed because Paul is kind of treating him like a lackey and he's had enough. And he walks. Mm. They, the moment he goes out, uh, if the film is the right chronology, Uh, The Beatles start jamming. Yoko gets up to the mic and does her primal scream, screaming, singing. It is quite a joyful moment, I think, in the movie. The Beatles, every band in the world is always happy to make as much noise as possible without any rehearsal. I mean, you know, to bang the drums and elicit feedback from guitars and scrape things is a wonderful feeling, particularly when you're possibly a bit upset that the lead guitar player has just walked out and has told you to find a replacement and see you in the clubs. And and so that's what happened. They make some loud noise. Now, in Bob Spitz's book, it says, looking quite pleased with the ominous events, flashing a fierce, tenacious smile, she jumped into the smoky spotlight, 
clutching the mic with both hands and screeching into it like a wounded animal. Reflexively, the high-strung musicians turned up the heat. For the moment, the Beatles served as her chastened backup band. Some bystanders stared in disbelief. The others, especially Paul and Ringo, may have missed the implication of Yoko's grand triumph, but they understood her well enough to know that it had nothing to do with the music. Now that is in a responsible, supposedly, Beatles biography. And it's such a pleasure to watch this movie and see what an interpretation and wrong interpretation of events is. Because one of the great things about this movie is we actually get to see them doing things we've only read about or heard on record, or perhaps some of it we've seen in the Grainy Letter B movie. Yeah, absolutely. To your point, that is a negative interpretation of Yoko. That was the, you know, the general viewpoint for years. But the truth, this movie does not bear that out. It blows it away. It's just clear that it's it wasn't. It's partly even to do with camera angles because if you focus in very very tightly, then you can you can see them and Yoko. But if you, which they often do, if you just move out. They often, they often go for big wide shots and you see that the, the place is absolutely full of people. And there's two guys who are maybe Buddhist monks who are sitting not very far away, staring intently at them. And then at some point, someone Ringo or someone goes, who's that? And someone goes, I think it's one of George's mates. So they go, yeah. all right then. And there's loads of people hanging around. It's not, it's not just the Beatles and Yoko. No. There's tons of people. It's John and Yoko. It's Paul and Linda a lot of the time. And Linda's daughter. That's a beautiful bit. See, that's another fantastic scene when it's difficult to remember the exact order of events, but I think it's the day they record Long and Winding Road when Heather, Linda's daughter, comes in. John teases her about, she says, I've got our new cats have babies. And John's, you know, John's teasing her about eating the cat, the babies. And it's all very delightful, Mm. that stuff. And then Heather starts to do, I, what I took to be an impression of Yoko on the mic as the band play along with her in a rather play school version of um, of what Yoko did, did in Twickenham. And it's kind of, you have to remember at that point, it's only, it's like a kind of, it's like an adult play group. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a short journey from ice cream to primal scream, but it's it's right there. <laughs> well, she's probably doing it authentically because she's, you know, six years old. That's what we should yeah. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you talk you talk in your piece about that we're a lot of the time we're we're watching the rehearsal process and the re- and, and the rehearsal process even if you're doing it is not always that thrilling and certainly not necessarily thrilling to watch but here you do get some glimpses of of absolute gold don't you I mean it takes a while sometimes they're fiddling about they play there's a brilliant bit where George goes I can't hear it so I'm just playing the wrong chords and everyone goes oh all right then well you know the idea of that you're going to capture a moment of artistic creation on film you might well do it um there's a very good you know there are other good versions of this kind of thing a fantastic movie of Aretha Franklin for example but um what happens here is you see get back from the moment Paul comes in and kind of goes you know no lyrics and then there's a drum beat added and then John Mm. starts playing a lick to it but this is over days this isn't all happening and also of course another and then finally it comes to fruition having morphed through being an anti uh, a song that is protesting anti-immigration 
racism, as it were, kind of Enoch Powell politics of the day, I suppose you'd call it. Mm. Um, and, you know, to watch that coalesce. But, you know, that's why the movie is nine hours or whatever it is long, because you can so see that Disney Plus, which is who aired it in, in America, streamed it. You can so see they would have said, you know, wouldn't it be a better idea if it was three hours just so it didn't alienate every watcher? And and could you remove all the smoking from it? Well, not really, because it wouldn't be any movie. Um, <laughs> you know, it's everyone smoking the whole time. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a absolute lesson in where to put your cigarette as a musician, because you can stick it in the headstock of the guitar. At one point, John spears the butt of his smoking cigarette on the, on the end of a guitar string. I thought that was a very good tip. I've never seen that before. There's also a very tense bit when Ringo's got the end of a ciggy against the grand piano. I know. And, I, and, and you want to listen to Ringo, but you also really want him to get the cigarette before it, it, it singes it. There is, a lot of, there is a lot of cigarette tension. Yeah, these, these are life hack pro tips from the Beatles on what to do with the cigarette. <laughs> Don't do it, kids. <laughs> but, you know, these are bits of gold. And, of course, what happens is... When the Beatles, I mean, I'll give away the ending of this bit, but when the Beatles record Long and Winding Road for the 15th time, it wasn't, you know, they don't all go, well, this is going to be the take, guys. This is going to be the one that's on the album because they're just trying to get it right. And mm. the, the take, the particularly moving bit for me was when he, you know, Paul starts, but, you know, Glyn John says, well, why don't you do a take of it? And Paul doesn't look like he thinks they're ready or anybody's really paying attention. And George Martin's kind of sitting with John on the floor trying to coax him into playing the bass notes. Ringo's really only, I think he's just woken up from a nap. He has just been asleep. He's in the been asleep, yeah, you know, at the drums. At the drums. And, and Paul says, okay. And he starts playing the piano and John starts playing along. There's no counting. Nobody says, this is the take, take 15. It's just they start and then this line pops up this subtitle or, or caption that says, this is the take used on Let It Be. The other thing that I was going to say in terms of the evolution of the songs, and especially Get Back, is when Billy Preston arrives. Yes. Because he's just, he's, he's, he's brilliant. They say he, he just happens to be visiting them and they know him and he, they knew him from Hamburg, I think, when he played with Little Richard. So to them, there's no, presumably there's no sort of better calling card than that. Um, and so he knows them anyway, he drops in to say hello and they go, oh, actually, we need a bit of piano. So he just sits down there and is absolutely brilliant. And they all have to slightly behave themselves a bit because there's someone else in the studio. It's a very interesting moment. Of course, I think one thing we do learn from this is that Paul McCartney, who wanted not Alan Klein, but Lee Eastman, his future father-in-law, to handle the business affairs, at this stage of his life, and I'm not saying anything about Paul McCartney now or before or since, but in 1969, he really only wants to do what Paul McCartney wants to do and spends his most of the movie persuading other people. That's what he's doing, isn't he? He's being a bit, he's quite schoolmarmish in a way. He's cajoling, come on, let's turn up on time. Let's get some discipline. Ever since Mr. Epstein died, we haven't had any discipline. Let's get, you know, that's what he prescribes for the band is a kind of course mm. of work in a kind of Mary Poppins-like way. Billy Preston, who is the suggestion of George Harrison. They're all kind of into him because they remember him very fondly from Hamburg. But it's George, I think, who's really having all the ideas at the moment. He's suggesting Bob Dylan joins the band at one point. He's clearly thinking about stuff like the concert for Bang on Bangladesh, which Billy Preston will play on, Eric Clapton, who they got. You know, a lot of these things are George's ideas. And you can see his frustration at being marginalised mm. in both the song selection and as 25% of the band. The interesting thing about Billy Preston, as you say, precisely right, 
he comes in and galvanizes them. They have someone to show off for. They have somebody suggesting great parts and playing keyboards better than any of them they can. The funny thing about this is, if you read, which I wasn't able to put into my piece, if you read the anthology, what they say in there, Paul has a rather different memory of it. Paul says he stayed too long. He outstayed his welcome. It was nice to have him around for a day or two. And Paul saying, I just thought it was a little bit weird how long he stayed around, as though Paul had expected him to come for a day. But oh. the songs weren't in a state where you could just come for a day and all the work would be done. To make those Let It Be songs, everybody had to be hanging out together. And it is very interesting to me, if you consider the movie to be Michael Lindsay Hoggs, and we could talk, Let It Be, I mean, to be Michael Lindsay Hoggs, and we could talk about him all day. But... If you consider it to be, as John and George did, Paul's point of view represented in Let It Be, right? So that was what John didn't like about Let It Be, was it Paul's point? If you, if you think about Let It Be, and I don't know whether anybody else has noticed this, there is not one camera pointed at Billy Preston on the rooftop. You do not <laughs> even know he's playing. I know what you mean, but that is partly because he's, because uh, I noticed that and I thought, gosh, that's a bit harsh. It's partly because he's sitting down. So he's obscured behind the keyboard, but I know what you mean. Ringo's sitting down too, quite famously. I know, but Ringo's in that ridiculous red raincoat. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You can't really tell that Billy Preston's in it, can you? you could, I mean, you could hear him, but he sounds great. Yeah, I just think it's interesting that even that Billy Preston thing that is here, like the Yoko thing we were talking about earlier, that Billy Preston, is so, he's such a joyful addition, that fantastic moment when somebody mm. brings in a stylophone and he suddenly starts jamming on it. I mean, we could have, they could have been stylophone on Let It Be. And that very nearly was, I think, that might be. And um, uh, But it's so funny that Paul in Anthology m remembers that differently to Paul it was a bit of a slight imposition. He stayed so long. I just thought that was really interesting when I was just idly reading anthology in the hope of finding some other insights into it. One thing I did really find interesting was that obviously George's problem was that John and Paul were the great songwriting partnership. So there's a bit early on when I think it's, he brings in either, I think All Things Must Pass, a great George Harrison song yet to be released. And John says, we're the rock and roll band, son. You'll have to do better than that. Yes, it's a joke, but it's a competitive joke. And it's also putting someone in their place. Mm. George, I mean, probably takes that on the chin and goes, OK, well, I'm just not giving you any of my good songs because after this band breaks up very shortly, as is on the cards, I'm going to put out All Things Must Pass. And it's going to be the highest selling solo Beatles record for quite some while because he's going to have all these great songs. Mm. When Ringo brings in Octopus's Garden, which is a very sweet moment. He sits at the piano and goes, I'd like to be... And he sings the first line and goes, well, I haven't got any more than that. But that's George helping him, isn't it? Well, I know, but the first thing George says when he plays it is, oh, you've learned A minor then. Oh, I didn't hear that. Oh, that's a bit mean. Which is very cycle of abuse in the band. But George, because he was a good man, he remembers himself and he helps Ringo and he helps him finish the song, which John and Paul weren't really going to do with any of George's songs because they were John and Paul. So I thought that was very interesting to see that come down to, you know, the low man on the totem pole, Ringo, with his lovely little song about octopuses, octopi. If there is one thing to be said about the movie, without overstating it, I find it to be one of the most, one. it's a promise kept. Finally, after 53 years, it is evident that this stuff should be treated as history. That this was made, is as brilliantly made 
and sounding and looking as it is with so much care by such an excellent filmmaker on Disney Plus. I mean, you know, it's so insane that this is on Disney Plus. I realize streaming is slightly different, but this kind of document is, it's a portal to things, um, a distant past that we, mm. and we've heard and we've heard about and we've read about, but suddenly we're in the room and we are allowed to see the ramp up and the downslide from moments of, that have been stored in our minds forever on LP, on CD yeah. uh, and in books and on all sorts. And it's here. And for that to be given the breathing space, when in fact, the fact is there is a lot of boring stuff in it. A lot of it is quite infuriating. It is for Beatles fans only. It's for scholars, really. I mean, you can't. Or nerds, I would say. It's for I. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I do want to make that point very clear that it, this is so good that it can't be for everybody because not everybody would want to see what it represents. But if anybody wants to see A, the making of Let It Be, or B, the creation of an iconic artistic product, then this is the best I can imagine it ever being done. The fact also is Let It Be is an excellent record. It's not even in my top two or 500 albums and I have now spent more time watching Let It Be being made and thinking about Let It Be being made than probably any other album in history well probably it'd be better if it was Blonde on Blonde or Sgt Pepper's or Name Your Album Here but the point is life isn't like that and art isn't made like that this is where the cameras were when there were cameras there. And that's only because the Beatles were iconic enough and hubristic enough and desperate enough to call the shots. And to see that footage being so thoughtfully and lovingly made use of is it's really it's really heartening. I love the movie. I, I agree. And 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 you, you mentioned the, the narrative that's that's put on it. There's a slightly artificial narrative leading up to the live performance, but actually then when it is when they do perform, it's it's really moving. Yeah, and I mean the little line I used at the end because I, I really felt this was that for those moments, you can imagine a kind of world where they didn't break up. And at the end of Let It Be, by the time they get off the up to the rooftop, you're like, well, I think. I might jump off it, even if they don't jump off it. Um, but in this movie, when they get up to the rooftop and you realise that they've really only made the decision the day before and John has complete stage fright, but he's got real pre-match nerves and then they do it as this split screen thing. So, you know, they're trying to, the Beatles minders are trying to stop the plod getting up to the top of the roof to stop it all. And the Beatles are playing on. And the, you just want it, the viewer just wants to jump for joy and never come down. Wesley Stace, I could, I could talk about this for hours. I sense maybe you could talk about this for hours, but alas, we have to stop. But, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Francesca Wade and Wesley Stace. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.